Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us that this journey to Jesus that we're on, the journey that he began when he called us, and we started when we responded to him in faith. One day, he's going to carry it to completion. We're going to finish this. It's a race. It's a long race. It's a hard race. Speaking of hard races, how many of you ever heard of a race called the Barkley Marathons? Have you heard? Just a couple? Barkley Marathons? Barkley Marathons are widely considered the most challenging the most challenging race on earth. Um, it's an unusual race. Many, most have never heard of it. Hundreds through the years have tried it. Only 15 people have ever completed the race. Um, the race originator, Gary Cantrell, came up with the idea after reading about the escape of James Earl Ray, the man who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. James Earl Ray escaped uh, from Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary and over the next 50 hours or so, covered about eight miles, snow and ice, rough terrain. Gary Cantrell, reading about his escape, about James Earl Ray's escape, said, you know what, I bet I could cover 100 miles during that time. And so he devised a race to do that, um, particular race, 55 hours or so of running. What makes this race so, so unique, so difficult, so unlike other marathons or other endurance races? Here are just a few things. One... No one really knows when the race begins up until a few hours before it starts, so you have to be ready. Runners have to complete the 160 kilometers in about 60 hours. There are five loops. You don't know exactly what the route of those loops are. You're giving clues along the way and things like buried books where you have to pour out, uh, tear out pages to prove that you're on the right course, that sort of thing. People talk about being lost on races. You get lost in panic if you're on a half marathon or a marathon, you get lost for a few minutes, you panic about your time. People in the Barkley Marathon routinely get lost for hours and sometimes even the entire night. The course is not marked at all. Again, the course is full of mind games and clues and things you have to discover along the way. People are told that it's a 160-kilometer race, but everyone who participates in it says, according to their GPS watches and things, it goes easily over 200 kilometers, part of the mind games. The route goes around and under Bushy State Prison, and it goes through Tennessee's steep, overgrown, frozen head state park. According to fitness experts, it's a greater physical challenge even than climbing Mount Everest. Runners will climb a total of 16,500 meters over the course of that race. That's twice the elevation of Everest. Only 35 runners are accepted to run in it each year. And here's one more neat little fun fact. They give out the rare Bib number one to the runner they think is least likely to complete the race, they call him the human sacrifice. <laughs> now that's a hard race. That's a hard race. I figured only Ian would know about it. He probably is trying to figure out how to, to run in it. That's the other thing. Even registering for the race is a secret. Uh, you have to send in all sorts of things, and no one really knows how you get in. But once you do, it's, well, it's that. And I was reading about this Barkley Marathon. And by the way, if you're curious about this, there is a special on Netflix about it. But I was reading about this Barclay Marathon, and, and this idea, in companion with the text of Hebrews chapter 12, really dawned on me. And it's this question, where in the world did we as Christians get the idea that the Christian life is supposed to be easy? Where did that come from? I mean, if you're watching Christian television, which by and large I advise strongly against, but if you're flipping through one of those Christian networks, pseudo-Christian networks, and you're hearing these descriptions of the Christian life, 
smattered in between appeals for your money, you're going to hear things about the benefits and the successes and the joys and the promises and the ease of it all. But that is not consistent with the biblical record. Where do we ever get this idea that this life, this life in Christ, following Christ, was supposed to be an easy one? Now, let's think about how this message would go today and, and how I would present it and how you might receive it. And ultimately, what I want to do is encourage you in the, in the heart of Hebrews chapter 12 to run with endurance the race set before you. Run this race and finish well. And roughly speaking, there are two ways that I could try to motivate you or encourage you to do that. And you've all had people that employ one of these two primary sort of tactics. People that try to lovingly encourage you, tell you, hey, you can do it. People that try to minimize the, the pain or the difficulty, saying, hey, it's not that bad. Hey, you got this. You know, the, the gentle prodders, encouragers. And then there are those that get in your face and yell at you and scream at you. Why are you quitting? Why are you so soft? Why are you giving up? And I have to say, I think the tone of today's text begs a little more of the latter than the former. We're deluding ourselves if we think this Christian life is supposed to be an easy one. Yes, indeed, Christ has called us to carry a burden which he says is light. My burden is easy. It's light. But it doesn't mean the path you walk or the journey that you take with Christ, who shares that load with you, who is yoked together with you, is an easy one. It's not. It's anything but and I think the challenge for us often is this, when we discover, and we will, and we have, when we discover that this life we have, now that we become a Christian, is still not easy. In fact, in some ways, it's much harder because now, not only do we have the former challenges we had before we came to Christ, but now we have the amplified challenges of following Christ and knowing that all the enemies that Christ had are now our enemies, and the world that hated him is going to hate us also. And we have a spiritual enemy working for our demise, just like it worked for his. Once we begin to discover that it's not as easy as we thought, we don't know how to handle it. We're not ready. We wanted this walk in the park. And instead, we get the Barkley Marathon. And all of a sudden, we get things like poor health, and financial struggles, and family conflicts, all sorts of loss, all sorts of hard things even up to and including death. And all these things are coming at us in so many different ways. And if we're not really careful, we're going to get far more than disappointed in this. We're going to go beyond feeling disillusioned about life. Down at the root somewhere, we're going to feel like we got cheated. Like we didn't get what we deserved. We didn't get what was promised to us. And then we grow bitter. We grow bitter more than just towards our circumstances or even to those people who are causing life to be hard for us. We grow bitter towards God. And this seemingly subtle thought, feeling, begins to grow in us. This bitterness that causes us to want to quit. Calls us to want to quit. God, you owed me better. I expected more. I was told differently than this. And we want to quit. You see, we wanted easy. But the new life in Christ is better than easy. It's worth it. There's something better than easy. It's worth it. To know that following Christ is the only means by which your soul will be satisfied. 
The only means by which you'll ever understand or grasp or possess or experience what your soul most deeply desires, what you were made for, who you were made for, is through the Christian life. You find that, no, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And that's the challenge of today's text. Only Christ satisfies, so don't quit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this scripture today would be like your words in our ears. It would be, it would be like your heart communicating to our hearts. It, it would be like a, a message so, so personal, so aware of us, so, so revealing of us that we would know you today spoke to us. Father, that's what, I, that's what I asked for. That sort of encounter with you today. Because there are some that are struggling. Some have no idea what's about to happen. Some who are ill-prepared for difficulty, hardship, discipline, struggle. Some who are already teetering on quitting. Some who have all but quit. So, Father, stir us up, send us out, raise us up, get us going again, I pray. Because that's what we need. That's for us. That's for our good. But that's for your glory, too. That this world may know, that our families may know, that our closest friends may know, you are worth it. And we will not quit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 again. I want to sort of catch us up on a bridge where we were so you see how these passages connect. It's the hard part about taking passages and not being able to go through the whole line of thought. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we got the great imperative. This is the overarching command. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the aim. That's what all of chapter 12 is about. Let us run this Christian life with endurance, this race that's set before us. Endurance just doesn't mean that we do it necessarily just with, with toughness. It means that we do it with finality, with perseverance. We start this thing and we finish this thing. So let's do this. Let's run it. And as we run, we learn these things in the first half of chapter 12. If we belong to Christ, this is something we can count on. We can count on that Christ has an invincible determination to sanctify us. If you missed last week's message or if you're new to us, I encourage you to go back to our website. You can listen to some of that, the first half of chapter 12. And I talked a little bit about that desire of God, that promise of God, more than just a hope for, more than just a wish, an unflinching commitment that God has made to us to finish what he started. And I called this this invincible determination. God is not going to rest until he shapes you for himself, until he makes you more like, like Jesus. You've often heard it said, and it's somewhat cliche, and I may, even, I may even botch the statement. God will take us as we are, but he will not leave us as we are. That would not be the plan and purpose of God. It doesn't work that way. He receives us, and then he begins to shape us and make us. And he's invincible in his determination to do that. So what does that mean? That means sometimes God's going to put you through the grinder. He's going to put you sometimes through the mill. He's going to put people in your life who are the, the grit in your life by which the pearl of your life is going to be emerged. This is what he's going to do. God promises us in Hebrews chapter 12 to discipline us. 
He promises to. And he promises that discipline all comes out of love for us. In fact, one of the first warnings that we see in chapter 12 is this. What happens if I look at my life and say, I don't sense any sort of discipline? If I'm going through this life and it's all easy, I could probably rightly surmise I'm doing this wrong. God disciplines those he loves. He disciplines those who are his children. One of the marks of belonging to him is to know that God is not going to rest and let me be disobedient, unbelieving, rebellious, worldly, compromised. He's going to war at those things because he's determined to to sanctify us. And why? Because he loves us. He loves us. He's fitting us for eternity. He's fitting us for himself, all out of love for us. After all, we're his children. And everything he does, we can count on he's doing for our best. He's always doing for our best. He is the epitome, the definition of a loving father. I know that's a stretch of a concept for some of us. I think about that that often when I talk to people who didn't grow up with a father or grew up with a bad father experience. That becomes sort of a disconnect for us. I get that. I grew up in a single-parent home. My parents divorced when I was two. My dad wasn't around much. One of the issues I had to deal with in my life was the resentments I had for, for an absentee father who never saw me play a ball game. I never saw me in a spelling bee, was not at my high school graduation, but God is. God's the father to the fatherless, and the more I get to know God, the more I see that God meets the needs that nobody else can. And this is God. He's perfect for us. He's always at work for us. We're his children. He loves us, and he's doing us for our best. Now, this discipline that God brings, that word discipline is a huge word. This discipline that God brings can come in many forms. Sometimes it's the outright cause of God. Sometimes it's when God does bring the hammer down. It's when God inflicts pain and difficulty in us directly from his hand. Sometimes it's simply what God allows. Knowing that the sovereignty of God means that God is never not in control. There's never a time where all the circumstances of my life are not by and through God. Always. And that's hard for us to understand sometimes. We have to stretch our minds around that philosophically. But I love the analogy that John Piper gives in a sermon on the discipline of God. When he speaks of how God works in our lives, he says God is not like that one that, that comes in after the painful experience or the traumatic event or the, the horrific struggle and then patches things up. This is what he says. God doesn't come in late and say, I can make this turn for good. He said, that's not discipline, that's repair. It's the difference between the surgeon who plans the incision for our good And the emergency room doctor who sews us up after a freak accident. God is, according to the Bible, the doctor that plans our surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations. So how does God work? In ways seen and unseen, recognized and unrecognized, he's bringing things to bear. He's redirecting our course. He's bringing pain where pain necessarily heals. But in that pain, there's always the providence of God at work. That's God's discipline. And we can trust that God does this out of love. Now we get to our verse for today, verse 12. When God's discipline comes, and it will if you belong to him. Why? Because he loves you and he wants you to be holy. He wants you to be like Christ. He wants you to be fitted for heaven. When it comes, what should we do? How should we respond? Look with me at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. When the discipline of the Lord comes, and it's painful for a moment, 
profitable forever. But when it comes, how do we react? You know, as I'm looking at that text, and just on the most basic superficial level, I can tell you one thing that jumps off the page. The responsibility there falls on me and you, right? It falls on me and you. When God's discipline comes, how are you going to react to it? How are you going to respond to it? How are you going to handle difficulties in your life? Lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet. It's God who is working in us to enable us to run this race all the way to then and finish well. He is that constant partner, Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, the one who started us on the course, the one who runs the course with us, the one with whom we will enjoy the fruits of success forever and ever. That's Christ. But he challenges us in this moment. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. I you to think back to the passage I read just a few moments ago. Isaiah chapter 35. I'm going to revisit that passage just for a moment, but this is in the New International Version. It reads just a little differently, maybe a little bit more modern. Listen to what it says again. Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice, blossom with spring crocuses. Yeah, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing with joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands. Encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He's coming to save you. And when he comes, we'll open the eyes of the blind, unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer. Those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness. Streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool. Springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. And a great road will go through that once deserted land. It will be named the Highway of Holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. It's only for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beast. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they'll be filled with joy and gladness. When the author of Hebrews is challenging people to do those three things, to lift their drooping hands, strengthen their weak knees, make straight path to their feet for their feet, He's referencing back to that great prophetic passage telling us you've got to get up and get going again. And you do that knowing this, always, better days are coming. Better days are coming. Always knowing God has made a promise to me. The way things are is not the way things always will be. These circumstances are temporary, but the work and plan of God is forever. So get up and get going. Listen. There's got to be some toughness in you as a Christian. I'm afraid that by and large, we have become very soft in our Christianity. We don't bear up well under temptation. We, we, don't, we don't bear up well under any sort of opposition, even if it's just joking, mockery, derision, scorn. We don't handle those things well. And when hardship comes, we act like that should never have affected us and we're so frail and fragile, we don't know what to do. The analogy of getting up to run is a reminder that this is tough. Anyone who's ever run a race of any distance will tell you it's hard and, and there's pain involved. 
I was reading an account of one of those who ran that Barkley Marathon and said, I lost nine of my ten toenails on this race. It's not easy. The Christian life requires some toughness to you. Get up and get going again. This, this droopiness, this, this emotional fragility, this, this physical weakness, this, this, this mental weakness. Overcome this. Get up and be tough. And in the meanwhile, as you get up and run again, do this. Do this. Don't overestimate the struggle. You see, that's what the author of Hebrews 12 is telling you. Listen, you think your life is so hard. You think the persecution that you're facing is great. You, you think that the cost is too high. You know, you, you're losing the support of family because you're turning against the culture. I thought about the other day we were discussing some, Cecilia and a friend were discussing some Muslim friends from childhood and how they had common experiences and in church and religious life, but then went two different paths into hardcore Islam, and which obviously is very different than biblical Christianity. And I started thinking about when you're taking the gospel to hard places and, and people steeped in hard cultures like Islam, the cost of someone choosing to follow Christ, to know that they will face scorn and derision at the very least. Um, they'll be cast out from their family most likely often unable to, to do business anymore in the ways they used to, maybe facing more than just persecution, maybe facing even death. And yet in those places, places like China, places like Saudi Arabia or Iraq, they're saying, but Jesus is worth it. And here we're so much softer, and we overestimate the struggle, how hard it is. The author of Hebrews said this, you have not yet faced temptation unto blood. You have not been through what Christ went through. Sometimes we rehearse this in our mind, how hard it is today to be a Christian. And we, we repeat these things. Oh, it's, it's, there's never been a harder time. Tell that to the Christians in the first century in the book of Acts. There's never been a harder time. There, there's never been a harder place than modern America to be a Christian. Tell that to Christians in North Korea today. Or Pakistan. Or Somalia. Listen, we overestimate the struggle and that discourages us. And we underestimate the reward. We don't see it as big as it is. We don't think about these things. As you heard Jeff singing, we don't think about that. What happens when you see Jesus? Will there be a sense of, of reward that's worth it? Don't overestimate the struggle. Don't underestimate the reward. And don't miss the point of the discipline. Don't miss the point. Remember we saw in the first half of chapter 12 that the discipline of God is out of love for us for the sake of our holiness. And then you read the prophetic passage of Isaiah chapter 35. It says, in the future, there's a road that we walk, but that road is the road of holiness, and only the righteous walk there. I think you could rightly say, those who don't care about holiness will not see God. They'll not. So wait, wait, are you saying you've got to earn your way? You've got to earn your way on, down that path? You've got to earn your way to God? No, what I'm saying is those who have no desire for holiness, no desire for righteousness, are not on the path. They're just not. The passage makes clear. Don't miss the point of the discipline. It's to shape you for what is to come. So the challenge then, starting in verse 14, is run to the end. Don't just start. Don't just remember your beginning point. Be steadfast. Be committed. Be prepared for hardship because you're going to run all the way to the end. 
Listen to what he says next, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It seems like an odd segue. And we were talking about this race, and then suddenly seems like in the text a sudden shift of gears or subject even. Strive for peace with everyone and don't miss the grace. But it all fits under the same theme, under the same purpose. And those verses 14 and 15, don't miss the grace of God. Strive for peace with everyone speaks to the togetherness of the Christian life. A reminder that you and I aren't in this thing alone. That's not the point. This is not like any other race where there's only one winner. This is something we're all doing together, and we want each other to finish well. We stick together. We help each other out. That means sometimes we've got to call each other out and say, man, that's, that's just not right. You can't do that and follow Christ. Man, what are you thinking? Listen, you can't trust your feelings. Listen, I, I know what you want, but that's not what's best. That's not what's good. That's not what's godly. It means we encourage one another. It means we show grace to one another. It means we get our hands dirty with each other and try to help people out, lift them up when they've fallen. It means we're in this thing together. You can't be in this thing together if you're by yourself, if you're just watching. If you treat Christianity as subject matter to be consumed, a, a topic to be understood. If you treat it all as just something personal and private. No, this is collective. You're part of a body, and we're running this thing together, and we're going to help each other get across the finish line. And sometimes that's an encouraging software, and sometimes it's a hard one. Sometimes it's a hand reaching down. Sometimes it's a proverbial kick in the pants. And both are necessary to get us going. Strive for peace. Where does this peace come from, by the way? You want peace in your life? You want peace with people? Where's that going to come from? I mean, the obvious, simplistic answer Overly simplistic would be, if you want peace, stop being in conflict. Stop fighting. But that's hardly sufficient. Where does it come from? Remember verse 11 of Hebrews 12? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. If you're a note taker, maybe put it an arching arrow, peace and righteousness. Those who have been trained by discipline become more righteous. The peaceful fruit of righteousness, well, the fruit of righteousness is peace. And remember what we said last week, the more self-discipline I have in my life, the less I require God's discipline in my life. The more I'm able to the more I'm able to set parameters in my own life, the more I'm able to practice things that I will do, guard myself against things I won't do, the less I require God's discipline in my life. I mean, that only makes sense, right? The same thing would be true of your children. If you have rules and expectations in your home, you say, this is how we do things here. This is what it means to be a member of this family. If they do those things, if they're consistent and obedient, righteous in those things, then you don't have to step in, right? They're doing them themselves. They're growing in holiness by practicing those disciplines. It's where those self-disciplines don't exist, where God's discipline has to come in. For the person who can't guard their own mind and thoughts, for the person who can't 
handle their own desires, for the person who doesn't fight with their own temptations, God's discipline comes in. What does Proverbs 4, 25 and 27 say? Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. In two words, what is that about? That's self-discipline. Because if I do that, if I, if I look at what I ought to look at and I think about what I ought to think about and I do the things I ought to do and I go where I ought to go and I don't stray from the things that are right in my life, that's self-discipline and I save myself from God's discipline. So this idea of peace, here's a little correlation for a moment, how those things relate. Conventional wisdom would suggest something like this. If you don't have um, inner peace, okay, you can't have this inner peace if you're in conflict with others, right? So if I'm in, if I'm in conflict with you, so he says, seek peace with everyone. If I'm in conflict with everybody else, I'm not going to be at peace on, on the inside, so if I fix my relationships, if I deal with those causes of conflict out there, I'll feel better in here. That's conventional thinking, right? The reason you're so worked up, the reason you're so stressed out, is just in conflict everywhere. You're in conflict at work, you're in conflict with your spouse, conflict at home. And if you fix those relationships, you take a deep breath, you feel inner peace. That's conventional wisdom. Let's flip that around for a moment. This is God wisdom. If I am pursuing holiness for myself, if I'm pursuing righteousness, if I'm living in a way that honors God, I, I want to be right. I want to walk in personal holiness. So in other words, I want to be at peace with God. I don't want to be warring with myself. Who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? How am I supposed to live? I want peace with God. That's holiness. I want integrity. I want a, I want a oneness of self here. By the way, I think for Christians, that's the primary cause of mental unrest, mental unhealth, emotional instability. It's Christians who are warring with themselves. Haven't yet figured out who they are and how they're going to live accordingly. So there's always this internal battle. Listen, walk in holiness. Be at peace with God. You'll be at peace with yourself. And then guess what? You know what you'll begin to find? You'll not have nearly the amount of external conflicts because you will be a person of peace. You'll be a person who's walking in peace with God, living righteously. Let your relationships emanate out of what's in you not let your relationships cause what's in you. So just walk in peace with everyone. And then he says this. He says, make sure that no one obtains the grace of God. No one fails to. And there's a huge phrase to underline. That means as I walk through this life, it's not just about me receiving and enjoying and experiencing the work of God in me that shapes me and forgives me and helps me along the way, that strengthens me for the journey. I want to make sure that you get that too. I don't want you to miss the grace of God. I want you to know what forgiveness is and how you get it through real repentance. I want you to know where the strength of God comes from and how he gets you over the hump and how he gets you through difficult circumstances and situations. I want you to have that. And then he says this in the text, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Where does a root of bitterness come from? And really, what is it? What is he talking about here? Well, again, I think the author of Hebrews is referencing an Old Testament text. Let me read it to you. It's Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. So I want you to be aware that anybody among you, male or female, 
family, tribe, nation, that no one is turning away from God. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And one, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, catch this phrase, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. When he talks about this root of bitterness, he's talking about what grows up in the soil of unbelief. In this soil of unbelief where I no longer trust in God and no longer trust in the providence of God, the purposes of God, why is God doing what he's doing? What grows up in that unbelief is rebellion. And that rebellion brings about a bitter fruit. He said, like a weed, this is going to grow. And that rebellion, the bitter fruit of unbelief, is rebellion. When I start to doubt God, when I stop trusting God, when I let my doubts supersede my beliefs, when those things happen, what grows from that soil is rebellion. And the fruit of rebellion is bitter. That's what this text is talking about. It's a, it's a bitter fruit, and that is contagious. Rebellion is contagious. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how people that turn from God tend to pull people with them? You ever notice how people do things in groups that they would not do by themselves? How people act in ways that they would never act alone? This bitter fruit of rebellion grows up. As I'm looking at this passage and been reading a bit of these last several weeks, Regarding this text, people that are deconverting, deconstructing their faith, walking away from the faith. We all know somebody. Many of us are related to somebody. Said they were Christian at one point, now they're not. They've walked away from the whole thing. I'm not a believer anymore. I reject all that. How often is that falling away that we see too often just the bitter fruit of rebelling against God? That's what Moses was warning the Israelites about. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, don't, don't rebel against God. Don't let that unbelief start to create rebellion. I wonder how often it's just bitter fruit of rebelling against God where someone comes to this conclusion. You can put it in a more modern way of saying, I'll be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. You know what? I'm going to go this way. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. In rebellion and stubbornness, I'll be fine. And in that unbelief, this rebellion grows and people walk away. Listen. I think more people are walking away because of rebellion than there are because of intellectual reasons, than there are because of emotional reasons. It has less to do with rational thought or even personal experiences. It has far more to do, I think, with this growing sense of unbelief. I start rebelling against who God is, what God says, what God wants for my life. And in that rebellion, that bitter fruit of unbelief starts to really show and people walk away. In the stubbornness of my heart, I'll be safe, but you're not. You're not. This passage makes it clear. Finally, this, there's an object lesson attached to the end. And it's an interesting object lesson. We've been studying Esau the last couple of weeks on Wednesday night, so the timing is rather amazing in my mind, so I certainly couldn't plan it out that way. But as we've been studying the book of Genesis and the sad tale of Esau, he actually is a fitting case study to running this race and finishing because Esau didn't. Esau didn't finish well. And he's a case study in failure in so many different ways. Look at what verse 16 says. It says, don't be like Esau. Okay? Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You may remember the story of Esau, and I'll give you the shortest of short versions for time's sake. God had made a great promise, a defining covenant in the Bible to Abraham. He told Abraham that he was going to be the father of a great nation, father of multitudes. He promised Abraham as part of that blessing that he was going to make his name great. He was going to give him a land and a people. And through Abraham would come a blessing, a particular singular blessing through which all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. As Christians, we know the interpretation of that in the New Testament. We can go to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And we can start in chapter 1 and we see this genealogy. Where did Jesus come from? And we see he comes down descended from Abraham. God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations was ultimately fulfilled and is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's that blessing. He's that seed. Now, to this covenant he made with Abraham, he said he's going to protect him and guard him and bless him and those that come after him who receive that blessing. So from Abraham, he passes it down to his son, Isaac. Isaac wanted to pass it down to his eldest son, Esau. God had given a prophecy to to Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, that it wasn't to be Esau's blessing. God, in his sovereign will, his divine purposes, said it is to be Jacob's blessing, not Esau's. Now, we know in hindsight, Esau um, did his part as well. He cared very little for this blessing. In fact, one day as he's coming in from the field hunting, he's hungry. His brother Jacob there is, is there with a pot of food. And shrewd, conniving Jacob says to him, he says, give me that food so I can eat. I'm dying here. I'm starving. And what did he say? He said, you know what? If you'll, if you'll give me your, your birthright, if you give me your birthright, I'll give you this food. Esau, short-sighted, not spiritually minded, only caring for what he can have and hold, what's right in front of him, what's coming next to him, says, what good is a birthright to me in these circumstances? Take the birthright, give me the food. He trades it away. Later on in their life, we see the great conniving of Jacob and Rebekah, and they steal away the blessing. One night in secrecy, unlike it should have been done, Isaac, still trying to undo what God had said was to be, still tries to pass on the blessing. The blessing is the confirmation of the birthright. The blessing says not only is yours all mine, what I have materially, but you carry on the spiritual lineage as well. The covenant now goes through you. It's going to be Abraham to Isaac to Esau. But Jacob, conniving, stole it away from him. And unseeing Isaac, blind Isaac, passes on the the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. The Bible says that Esau sold it away for a single meal. Later he regretted it. Later, he realized he's missing out on the prosperity of it because to get that birthright and get that blessing meant that he would have the favorable land. He would have the the animals and servants, and he would have had the money and all those things, but it was too late. It couldn't be undone. What does this passage tell us about Esau? Let me give you these final lessons from his hard life, and we'll wrap. If you don't sufficiently treasure the most important thing, you're always going to be tempted to trade it away for lesser things. And that was Esau's problem. He never grasped the goodness of God. He never saw how important God's blessing was and this covenant promise. Spiritual things didn't matter to him. Esau lived for himself. He lived for the pleasures of life. That's it. Esau lived for stuff. Esau lived for Esau. And when he didn't treasure that one thing, and the model here obviously is us treasuring Christ above all things. If you don't treasure him above every other thing, you're going to be tempted to trade him in for other things. You'll be tempted to walk away. And poor Esau, 
Comfort and pleasure are woefully insufficient goals for your life. If that's what you're living for, consciously or subconsciously, I just want to have fun. I want to get stuff. I want to enjoy stuff. I want to squeeze the most out of life. Those are woefully insufficient. And I will say this, not only insufficient goals, they are unsatisfying outcomes for your life. Because what happens when you've got it and you realize the deepest longings of your heart and life have not even been scratched? And you've got all this stuff around you. You've had all these experiences. You've met all these people. You've done all these things. And you realize it didn't even begin to scratch the deep desires of your heart. Those are woefully insufficient things to live for. And that's what Esau lived for. Just what's next. Esau's life also tells us that some bad decisions, no matter how bad we feel about them afterwards, no matter how much pain and sorrow and regret and tears and woe and all that, some bad decisions can't be undone. They just can't be. That's not to say that God can't give grace and forgive, but the fruit of bad decisions, the fruit of immoral choices remains. If we had the time, you could hear some testimonies of this room of some people that can tell you some things they did. They wish they could undo. They still wish today they could undo them. It's not that God hasn't forgiven them. and It's not that their life hasn't moved on. Some things can't be undone. In the NIV, Hebrews 12, 17 says this. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, when he finally realized what he lost, when he finally realized what he traded in, what he'd given up, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. And I guess the final and harshest reminder is this. At some point, repentance is no longer possible. At some point, it's just no longer possible. And I say the no longer possible from the human side of things. There comes a point where we break and we just don't repent. And that's why you see the warning passages in Hebrews. The warning passages are about us. They're about our limitations. And at some point, we just go too far. If repentance is what's necessary to get you up and walking in, then repent is what you need to do today. If toughening up a little bit is what you need to do, to get up and get going again, dust yourself off and be strong, then that's what you need to do. If you need someone's help, then you need to humble yourself and say, hey, help me, pray for me. Then that's what you need to do. If you see someone around you stumbling and you see that they're not running well, they're not running this race with endurance, then helping them out is what you need to do. But let's purpose to do this. Let's purpose to all run this race with endurance. Not because it's easy, but because it's worth it. That's our challenge. Would you pray with me this morning? Listen, all over this room, as you just bow your heads in prayer for a moment, either talk to God or think about what God might be talking to you about. What are you going to do? I mean, first, you've got to be honest with where you are. I mean, you've got to be honest with this. I mean, the first question you've got to ask yourself is, I, am I even in the race? Am I even in the race? See, there's a finish line of this race called life. We would say that's death. It's appointed unto us to die. That's normal and natural. That's part of God's order. But after this, the Bible says, is judgment. In that judgment of God, God sorts us. He sorts us into categories. But there are only two. 
loosely speaking, those categories are winners and losers. It's those who remain in darkness and those who embrace the light that is Christ. It's sheep and goats in the vernacular of the New Testament. Those who belong to Christ, his children. Those who remain outsiders to the promise of Christ, aliens, even enemies. When you stand in judgment, you want to be, I assure you, on the right side of God. How will you do that? On that day of judgment, God will not evaluate all your good and bad and stack them up one against the other like coins on a scale. He'll measure you against perfection, Christ. He'll measure you against holiness. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So what do I do? Because I'm not holy. I can't put this toothpaste back in the tube. I can't undo what's been done. And I must require the holiness of another. That's Jesus who loved me, gave himself for me. You've got to start the race by embracing Christ who came into this world to give you life. He lived the life like you and I live, except he lived it perfectly, sinlessly. He became a fitting sacrifice for our sins because he was perfect, acceptable to God. And in his crucifixion, our sins were atoned for, paid for. And in his resurrection, he demonstrates he is exactly who he said he was. That God received that sacrifice and raised him up. And he has the ability to do everything that he promised, to give us life. That resurrection life of Jesus is the foreshadowing, the precursor to the life he promises to everyone of faith. New life, resurrected life, eternal life. He was the forerunner. He shows us. He offers us. He grants us that. You get in the race by putting faith in that in him. And know as you run this race that the purpose of Christ in you is not simply to take you to heaven. It is to prepare you for heaven. Or else you'd be in heaven already the moment you said yes to his promise. And now he's readying you for himself. He's refining you. It's called holiness. So he wants you to get up and run that race. Where are you? Take an honest assessment of yourself. Can't do this alone. You need others. You can't do this without preparation and readiness. You can't do this carrying around a load of sin. You can't do this living a frivolous life, doing stuff that doesn't matter. You can't run well that way. All this passage is about, listen, run and finish well. And here is the underlying implication of it all. You're going to be glad you did. You're going to be so glad you did. It's going to be so worth it. So what do you need to do today? Do you need to start the race? you need to get up and get going again? you need to shed some baggage that's holding you back in the race? What's your response? Father, show us what we should do today. Toughen us. Strengthen us. Help us. Father, give us both the will and the ability to do what pleases you now. And may we get up and do it. We take responsibility and the power of your Holy Spirit. Get up and do it. Do what we need to do. Stop toting around the sin like, we, like we're stronger than somebody else, like we can carry it when it's crushing us. Stop wasting our lives with frivolous things that don't matter, thinking one day we'll get to the important things. But to live with purpose and intentionality, 
knowing that this is the purpose which you made us. We want to know who we are and what we're made for. We find it in you and you alone. Everything we need and everything we want most is you. It's from you. It's through you. It's in you. Get us going. I pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen.